0: Jeremiah chapter 2, this is God's word. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt, disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me, and went after worthlessness, and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord, who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and will. And with your children's children, I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and sea, or send to Gadar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Tapanes have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree you bowed down like a whore, yet I planted you a choice vine, wholly of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say, I am not unclean, I have not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to the wilderness. In her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, it is hopeless for I have loved foreigners and after them I will go. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they say, arise and save us. But Where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise, if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. Why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain have I struck your children. They took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. And you, O generation, behold the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Why then do my people say, we are free, we will come no more to you? Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me, days without number. How well you direct your course to seek love, so that even to wicked women you have taught your ways. Also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You did not find them breaking in. Yet in spite of all these things, you say, I am innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. How much you go about changing your way. You shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. Formit it too you will come away with your hands on your head, for the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust, and you will not prosper by them. Read this far in God's word. Remember that Jeremiah lived three miles outside of Jerusalem in a little town. And here in chapter 2, God told Jeremiah to walk that three-mile walk and bring a message. So let's hear direct from Jeremiah as he tells it beginning in verse 1, what that message was. The word of the Lord came to me, verse 1, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, stop, take a guess, take a guess. You know your Bible, right? You know this God we're worshiping here together today. You know God, right? He loves his people, right? So guess what he would say through Jeremiah to the city of Jerusalem? What do we teach the children to sing? Jesus loves me, this I know, right? So we know the love of God. Here's the question. Did God love the people? Of course. Did the people love God back? Well, let me ask you. You love God, right? That's why you're here today in church, to worship him. God loves you. Do you love him back? God is faithful, right? Faithful enough that we could all trust in him. So do we? The title of my message is The God We Used to Trust because we have the same problem in our country, maybe the same problem in our own hearts. That the people of Judah had in Jeremiah's hearing, we used to trust God. And that's the main point of this sermon, this chapter. God showed how the people of Judah used to trust in God. We'll see that main idea unfold in three subpoints. Number one, turning away from God toward worthless idols, verses one through nineteen. Two, becoming fascinated by other gods, verses twenty to twenty-eight. And three, refusing to acknowledge their guilt. So first, turning away from God toward worthless idols. So back to our story. God told Jeremiah to take that three-mile walk, go to Jerusalem, and this is the first day of Jeremiah's preaching ministry. Brand new prophet, just brand new ordained and set apart by God. We saw that in the previous chapter last time. What will God give Jeremiah now to say to the people on the first day his first prophetic message to Jerusalem? Are you ready? Here we go. Verse two. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth your love as a bride how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown so we need to understand what is it, what is the first thing that god is saying to jerusalem with this brand new prophet jeremiah We could today, since it's the 4th of July, some of us wearing red, white, and blue, we could reflect as a country what happened 245 years ago on this day in our country. Or those of you married, you could reflect back on what happened in the early days of your marriage and what it was like then. The message that God gives to Jeremiah to bring as the first message to Jerusalem was God, as it were, flipping through an album, a photo album, reminiscing about their love for him in the early days, the start of their relationship to God, much like a broken-hearted spouse might reflect back on the early days of a marriage when things haven't gone well. God himself is heartbroken. God remembers the former love of his bride, of his people. The word love here in verse 2 is, in the phrase your love as a bride, is the word chesed, and you might remember that Fantastic Hebrew word for covenant faithful love. The covenant love of God. This is contract love, committed love. And here it's being used, God's word for love is being used to describe the people's word for love. Look at it in verse 2. What he's saying is, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. God loved with chesed love, the covenant faithful love, and they loved him back with chesed love, the faithful kind of covenant love. It was a relationship of faithfulness two ways, God to his people and his people to God. It was a relationship of adoration. And the people gave God their hearts like a new young bride gives her heart to her husband, just married, first married, in love, romance, following, trusting, submitting, desiring to be nearby. The people were the loving bride of God. And God was, what shall we say, the perfect groom. He was the faithful husband. He cherished his people. God treated his people with honor and respect. The bride is the apple of God's eye, his best and most valuable possession. He kept her safe from all attackers, whether it be Egypt or the Philistines. We know the story. That God provided for his wife a beautiful home, plenty of food, life, And a land flowing with literally and figuratively milk and honey. And the measure of their loyalty and devotion to God in those early days was that they followed God, he says in verse 2. They ventured into the wilderness, that open area that, as he says in this verse, had never been tilled. How bold that must be, how trusting that must be to go out into this area with this God. And this was in contrast to what they had in Egypt with its finely tilled lands and abundant crops. Strong confidence in the Lord is what led the people to follow him into such unfamiliar places. The people trusted God that deeply. In God, they trusted. This is not lost on God. God is reminiscing. The first message he brings to Jerusalem through Jeremiah is, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. And similar for our nation's history, just reflect on that for a moment, since it is Independence Day here, the American founders had such trust in God that they risked starting their own country in order to have freedom to worship. And now, oh, do we have ability We have ability to worship God, but do we? Do we as a nation uphold even the ethical standard of God found in his word? And many in this country aren't following God anymore at all and trying to change some of the core teachings of the Bible. Many in this country aren't trusting in our God anymore. See the similarity. God went on in verse 3 to describe his care for his bride in terms of a farmer describing his vegetables and his fruits. Verse 3 pictures a harvest festival, and the people themselves are the first fruits. God has shown us in this agricultural analogy, and it's another way of communicating God's love and his care, the people's trust, and their, their great relationship that God protected them, and they felt safe. In the next paragraph, I'm going to move on now a lot quicker in different paragraph chunks. You've got to get the start, and then we'll see how the rest of the picture fits. Verses 4 through 8. We suddenly fast forward from the time when the people trusted God in the wilderness to the time when the people were settled securely into the land of promise. Physically, they're settled in the land. Spiritually, they're ready to wander from God. Verse 4, Jeremiah tells them to listen because this is a message from God. And verse 5, God breaks out with a tough and pointed question. Thus says the Lord, verse 5, What wrong... Did your fathers find in me? Do you have any legitimate reason to walk away from me as your God, he's asking? God's people used to love God. They used to adore God, but now it's all different. And we Christians today read their sad story. We shake our heads as if we're going tisk tisk tisk. They had a great God. They had good things going. What was that all about? What wrong did they find in God? Who would wander from God? It makes no sense, right? Right, yeah, it makes no sense, the people forgetting their God. What went wrong with them? How did they get there? And look where Jeremiah begins to diagnose the problem, on the spiritual leaders. Why didn't the spiritual leaders sound the alarm? Jeremiah 2, verse 8, the priest did not say, where is the Lord? The priests. the Bible teachers, he goes on to say, the pastors and elders didn't do their job. Their job was to bring people back to the Lord the moment they start to wander. But the spiritual leaders did not challenge the people. They didn't ask, where is God in the life of the nation? Where is God in the life of your marriage? Where is God in the life of the church and the school and the workplace? No one was part of the solution. Not the prophets, not the priests, not the kings. Leading wayward people back to the Lord is what makes a spiritual leader, Jeremiah is explaining. So in verse 9, God is suddenly looking at things from heaven to earth and saying, I contend with you. Them's fighting words, as they say. Contend is literally to fight, to take up the case. I got a problem with you. He's taking them to court. God is filing for divorce, but not in order to punish, not in order to separate, not vindictively, but rather in order to get his bride back. He's reminiscing those days. He can't get her attention. How do we know? Because God says at the rest of verse 9, and with your children's children, I will contend. God will always fight for his people, for his marriage, by threatening divorce. I can't recommend this for humans to do, but it's what God does. The first bone of contention that God says is that the people did something that no other countries have done. They changed gods. None of those nations listed in verse 10 have changed gods, but Israel did. They're the only one that had the true and living God. And they're the one that changed God's. So verse 11, what did the people gain? Nothing. Verse 12, God had called on the heavens to be shocked at this. Who would do this? Who leaves the one true God? What is so shocking about this? God gives an illustration. Verse 13, forsaking God, what's it like? What's it like? It's like living in the desert but not having to worry about water because you live above a natural spring of water that constantly flows with water on your property. So you built a whole farm and you can water your crops and you can keep your animals alive. You have a whole farm there. Life is good. You're in the desert, but life is good. But then you say, I'm leaving. And you forsake that farm because of whatever. And one day you decide to leave the farm and build. What are you going to do for water? You're going to build your own underground cistern for water. So you do. You walk away from the farm. You walk away from the spring. You dig and dig and dig and dig, and you build your own underground cistern. Problem is, it's broken. All the water leaks out. You're far from the farm, far from the spring. You're in the middle of the desert. The cistern that you b- you've built doesn't work. You're dry, and you're in the desert. That's what it's like to forsake God. It's the illustration. That's what's so shocking about it. He calls on the heavens to be shocked. We see the result next. The people are now living in a dangerous, unprotected life. You could use the image of slavery, verse 14. Verse 15, bleakly and accurately described it as lions roaring against them, making their land a waste, destroying their cities. In verse 16, their new slave master, which we happen to know is Egypt, shaved their heads, which is really just a symbol of control Verses 17 to 19, God returns to the water imagery again. In order to get a drink of water, they have to cozy up to other nations, you know, like Egypt with the Nile River or Syria with the Euphrates River. They're so thirsty that they'll do anything. That anything includes worshiping another god and another nation guides them to another god and then they can have drink when God would have provided for them. But they walked away. Verse 19 summarizes their choices by saying, It is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. Who will protect them now? That was point one, turning away from God toward worthless idols. And verses 20 to 28, now we continue forward, becoming fascinated by other gods. Here God continues to mount the evidence of why he threatens to divorce them. These verses now read like we're in a courtroom. And God is the prosecuting attorney, and he's giving a slideshow, as it were, of evidence against the people, picture after picture, image after image, of God giving reasons why he should or could divorce his people, their guilt. So it seems to quickly cycle through the exhibits of what it would be like for the people not to trust God but become fascinated by other gods instead, like exhibit A. You are like a bride becoming a prostitute, verse 20. Exhibit B, you're like a choice vine carefully cultivated in the vineyard that's now reverted to wild and so it's producing useless grapes. Hit the remote control. Exhibit C, you are like a person washing with various soaps failing to wash away the sin, verse 22. Exhibit D, you're like a camel that runs amok, not taking more than three steps in one direction before changing directions and cycling around again verse 23. Exhibit E, you're like a wild donkey's passion to indulge itself, verse 24. And exhibit F, you're like an addict who denies the possibility of rehab, verse 25. Yet another scene in verse 26, God shows the people not trusting God anymore, is like a thief caught red-handed, and all the leaders will be shamed. They're kings, officials, priests, and prophets. There's enough guilt to go around. When God is removed from everything, everything becomes permissible. Does that sound familiar? The killing of the unborn, for example, and the neglect of the poor are things that go against God's word. What else happens when God is removed? There's confusion. Confusion of the people is one result that's so obvious. They're so caught up in sin, they cannot think straight. And here God seems to take quotes from the people what the people said, and he proves how confused they are. Let me take you through it briefly. Here God takes quotes and brings them to light in this courtroom to show that their defense of themselves will not stand up in the courtroom of God, that he has every right to divorce them, that they're guilty. Verse 20, they declare the rejection of God and their covenant obligations to God when they boldly say to God, I will not serve you. I will not serve you. It sounds like a bratty teenager, doesn't it? I will not serve you. But then in verse 23, they claim that they're not breaking the covenant by going after other gods when they say, I am not unclean. I have not gone after the false, the baals, the false gods. It's like a toddler who has brownie all over their face. and say, where did the brownie go? I don't know. Next, we hear how they denied in verse 23. They now admit in verse 25 when they say, it's hopeless for I've loved foreigners and after them I will go. Didn't you just say that you're not following false gods in verse 23? And yet now you say it's, it's hopeless And you're going to go after them. In verse 27, they even confuse gender. Does that sound familiar? Within their false worship, they confuse gender. What you may not realize is to this tree, which is a feminine goddess represented by the wood, they say, You are my father. But to the stone, which represents a masculine god, they say, You gave me birth. Failing to trust God brings confusion about the simplest, most basic things in the created order, the things of this world, even about their own false religious beliefs, they do things that doesn't make any sense. But what's really fascinating about verse 27 is God's insight into what happens next to further expose their confusion. Let me read straight from verse 27, starting in the middle of the verse. They have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they say, Arise and save us. Do you catch this? This mixed-gender worship of false, non-existent gods does not provide the blessings they were seeking. Everything fell apart, so now they pro forma, turn to God, and sort of kind of ask for help, but don't really mean it. God would be glad to help them, don't be confused. All they have to do is change God's back. There's nothing in this verse that says, we repent, we turn away from these gods, we come back to you. They just want the goodies, that God would come and save the mess. Verse 28 ends this section with God confronting them about their insane attachment to false gods, despite the problems it causes. Listen to verse 28 as God answers the people who asked him to save them but didn't really mean it. Here's verse 28. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. He's mocking them. you got tons of gods. Why come to me? Ask any one of your other gods to save you. He's showing them that they have forsaken the one true God. The people are not repenting. They're not coming back to God. If they were, then God would save them. But the people were not repenting. They remain fascinated with false gods. And they can even say in verse 25, it is hopeless. They will go after false gods compulsively without any self-control. They recognize that about themselves in verse 25. But then they will say in verse 35, I'm innocent. Surely God's anger has turned from me. How do you figure? This is the behavior and mindset of an addict. If you've been close to an addict, you recognize it. One minute, the addict says, I can't help it. And the next minute, the addict says, God couldn't hold me responsible for this because I can't help it. What does God say in response to all the addicts, both ancient and modern? Verse 35, behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I am, I have not sinned. He doesn't let them get away with it. The key to coming out of our addictions is recognizing that there's sin and turning to the one true God in the way that he has asked us to. Repentance starts with saying, I have sinned. I'm culpable and responsible and I should not have done this. I have sinned. What was it on Happy Days that the Fonz, so cool as he was, could never get himself to say, I was... I was... I was wrong. He could barely say the word. It's us. I was wrong are some of the hardest words for anyone to say, and repentance is required for us to leave our idols and return to God. I was wrong to trust the idols, oh God. And now I turn around and trust you alone. The issue that these verses bring out is that this addiction, this spiritual idolatry, Came to characterize the whole community of Jerusalem as a unit. Not just one person or a lot of people or most of the people or all the people. It was the whole of the people as a people, as the people of God. They themselves were in idolatry. This God sent Jeremiah to confront her, the people of God in Jerusalem as a unit, and cut through the confusion. God is not confused. Jeremiah is not confused. The people of God walking with God are not confused. It's very, very simple and straightforward. It's idolatry. The only way out is repentance. The only question left is, will they repent? That's what we can ask ourselves about our fellow citizens. Moving on to the third point, refusing to acknowledge their guilt. Verse 29. It's legal language. We're still in that courtroom. Courtroom language, contend, bringing charges or filing a lawsuit officially. Back in verse 9, it was God bringing charges, filing for divorce. God was doing that to persuade them to return to God. How do the people respond? Well, verse 29, the people still do not repent. In fact, they actually make it worse. How could you make it worse? Somehow they found a way. The people bring a countersuit, and they countercharge against God. Now, does that sound like the attitude of contrition and humility No, it's an argumentative attitude and the people were being immature, combative, and retaliatory, which reveals yet more guilt. And then the form of verses 30 to 35 is an ancient times king's treaty form. The kings of big empires would overlord the kings of small areas. And so the picture is God is the big king, of course, with the large empire presenting to a smaller king a case of displeasure and grievances. Basically, the overlord would confront the smaller king, ask questions with implied accusations, talk about the previous benefits of the contract, how the lesser king broke the contract, how the offenses cannot be repaid, and a threat of judgment. So we see all this in verses 30 to 35. Verse 30, they killed the messengers, literally, which was God's prophets. In verse 31, they didn't mistreat them. God did not mistreat them, so why are they trying to spin it? Verse 32, every bride remembers her dress. I wish I had time to ask each bride in here, tell me what your dress was like, tell me what your hair was like. No one will say, you know what, I just don't remember. You'll tell me down to the detail exactly what it is. That's the illustration here. Every bride remembers her dress and how she wore her hair, but the people of God forgot their spiritual husband. Can you imagine? There was no longer any love or trust for God in their hearts, verse 32. Verse 33, they're so spiritually promiscuous that they would have taught a class for harlots, In verse 34, there's evidence of their guilt in oppressing the poor. In verse 35, while they still claim innocence, God's verdict is they're guilty. And it follows the pattern, as we said, of ancient kings addressing the acts of rebellion by their lesser kings. The chapter ends with verses 36 and 37 showing that repentance is absolutely necessary because the Lord says, the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust. Those false idols you're trusting, the Lord has rejected. They're not acceptable to God. Remarkably, the chapter ends showing that the way towards repentance is still open. The pathway is still open for turning to God, turn from sin, turn from idolatry. Punishment is yet avoidable. The tone here is a tone of warning, not a tone of announcing certain doom. So as we wind down now and consider the chapter 2 as a whole, we realize that salvation is a romance, God loves us with his heart, and he expects us to love him with our whole heart. It's not just external. It's not stand when we say to stand, sing the words we say to sing, give some, go home, be nice, wear something nice. It's not just the external stuff. God expects our hearts to be his. Do we love God like a newlywed? Or have we been looking for love in all the wrong places? Not trusting God has been described in this chapter a lot of different ways. Chasing um, changing gods, trying to get water from a broken cistern, sleeping around with false gods. It's all the same sin. Not trusting God, not loving him. What's God going to do with us? Have you ever been in charge of a classroom or a workforce of people or a large family or some trip? You have this whole, this whole group of people and you're in charge of them, right? What are you going to do if they behave like this? What is God going to do with us? We don't trust God like we used to trust God. What now? Will God go through with it and actually divorce us? Because that would be the end of us. His bride, his people? No. No, no, no. God will never stop loving us. He doesn't break his covenant with us just because we broke our covenant with him. Let me say to you today, if you've never entered this covenant relationship with God, the relationship of love and care that's unconditional, God is actually courting you right now. It might have sounded like a lot of harsh things to say, but God wants your heart. He's inviting you to trust in him. Trust God now because he'll never let you go. That's what this chapter actually shows. And those of you who have entered a love relationship with God, then ask yourself today, just take stock real quick, do you still love God today as you did at first? Because if you're not passionately in love with God right now, you're spiritually behaving like the camels and donkeys of this chapter. But God, your husband, wants you back. The gospel is that God will not just take you back. That's done in human situations. What's divine about this situation, what's gospel of grace from God about this situation is that God will take us back and restore our spiritual purity. God will actually restore us to holiness. Jeremiah wrote about it later in Jeremiah 31, verse 3, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you, Again I will build you, and you shall be built. Listen, O virgin Israel. How could he say that? Because he restores his people to their purity. To have God still consider his bride would be wonderful, but that's not even the best part. It doesn't go far enough. God's cleansing of us when we return to him is so complete. His restoration of us, of all of our wrongs, is so full that we have inherent internal purity and holiness, as if at the first. And we have a passion for Christ that won't quit. How does God do that? Isn't he holy anymore? And verse 22 told us that washing ourselves with various detergents left us guilty before the Lord. So what detergent is this now that can wash away the stains of our guilt? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Our divine husband needed to die for us in order to keep us as his own, and this he did. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Ephesians five, twenty five to 27. Jesus Christ, our Savior himself, came into this world for the express purpose of retaining us as the people of God, his bride, his wayward bride, In order to keep us, he needed to take on a human body which provided him the ability to die, and he did in fact die in real time in history on that cross to remove our spiritual promiscuity and to restore the virginity of his spiritual bride. And we can trust him just like we used to. In conclusion, I would say once again, believe in God like you used to. Once again, believe in God like you used to. Do you believe that all the blessings come through taking our country back to our Christian roots through political power? That's a spiritual trap of idolatry. The liberal church in America years ago got involved in politics, and so that church declined. And if the conservative church in America aligns itself with a political agenda, it will fall into the same trap. The quest for political power destroys our spiritual influence. Once we realize that, we repent and turn to God. What do we do? What should we do? First, we get back to trusting God ourselves, each individually, and us as a church unit. And second, we equip Christians to go out into the world and to live as God's light and bring his light, bring his word to the issues in our lives and our nation. If we can rebuild any nation, it's because we believe in God. And his ethic, and we trust him. We have to avoid trusting in ourselves, our spouses, our families, our ethnic group, our church denomination, our political allies, our state or national government. The lesson of Jeremiah 2 is to avoid trusting in any human leaders for your personal sense of stability. Trust God alone. Why? Just a quick review. God redeemed his people out of Egypt, he guided them through the wilderness, he provided for all of their needs. He gave them a place flowing with milk and honey, and he blessed them abundance and faithfulness. And you can add to that since the days of the Old Testament. Consider what blessings we have today. Why should we trust God? In our historical Christian faith, we share that same list with the ancient believers, and we have more. We now have the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our salvation in him. We have the whole New Testament and the New Testament church. We have the last 2,000 years of rich building of Christian faith, worship, study, and writings to rely on and to benefit from. We have the vast resources of Christian Bibles, of various translations in your language, Christian books, articles, websites, sermons, seminars, and resources. We have a country that still protects freedom of worship and religion, and we take inventory in our personal lives of many blessings besides. We have the opportunity to use our many blessings to reinvest into the kingdom of God, including our time and talents, and be a part of the advance of his kingdom. Why is it that Bible knowledge and Bible reading and the service of Christ has startlingly gone down with the proliferation of these resources? God has given us so much. The question is what are we doing with it? Are we serving him and where? Where is our trusting of God bearing fruit in his kingdom and in what ways are we being salt and light how sacrificially are we supporting his kingdom and his missionaries? So ask yourself this, how consistently have I trusted in God throughout my life? Because it starts with me. It starts with you. Picture God flipping through the memory book of your spiritual walk. Ah, I remember, says God, when you used to wake up early and pray with me. He flips through. I remember when you would volunteer for everything, serve no matter what it costs. And he flips through the photo album of our earlier walk with God. And we're not as close to God as we once were. God expresses divine nostalgia to us. Remember the good old days, you and me. We started following God, our covenant husband, and trusting him to protect, trusting him, him alone to provide. And then we start through this wilderness, this messed up world, we develop patterns of grumbling that get repeated. We even outright rebel against our God. Remember when we used to sing with gusto? We used to pray that since all of our money and possessions and skills belong to God, that He could use us, however He wants to use us, and now we've got an attitude, and now we have demands, I and mean, now we have conditions and more conditions. And God says, "I see it, and I love you anyway." Many chapters later, Jeremiah 31, famous words, let me read them to you now. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I'll write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Remember how God sent Jeremiah that three-mile walk? Go on over, three-mile walk from Anathoth to Jerusalem. Say this to Jerusalem. And God starts reminiscing. And Jeremiah starts preaching. How does that story end for Jerusalem thanks to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Let me fast forward all the way to the end and tell you. Revelation twenty one two And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, coming down out of heaven from God. Or Revelation one nine. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. That's how it ends. For the people in Jerusalem. So again, I say to you as I close: no matter what you're facing, no matter what our country is facing, once again believe.